Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host of the show. You know, Tyler, one of the biggest buzzwords in coastal planning these days, and I would say over the last three to five years, is the notion of resiliency. There is a lot of federal programs and federal money geared to this notion that we can and should find ways to survive uh, and prosper after the onslaught of coastal risks. And the reason why uh, I think this show is so important is because we're going to bring a perspective to that time-worn issue uh, of coastal resiliency from a perspective that I have not seen or heard from before. We are so pleased to have on the show Dr. Frederick Steiner. Uh, Dr. Steiner is at the University of Pennsylvania. He is the Dean and Paley Professor of the Pennsylvania School of Design. Uh, He is a fellow at the American Society of Landscape Architects. And really, I think, unlike so many of the engineering folks we talk to, I think brings a unique perspective. Uh, Dr. Steiner, thank you for joining us on the American Shoreline Podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, Dr. Steiner, Peter and I really are looking forward to getting into this discussion with you all about designing more resiliently. But before we do, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical firsthand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the thedunesciencegroup.com. Uh, Dr. Steiner, in we we had a chance to reach out to you because we read about your work in a recent uh, edition of Metropolis Magazine. The title of the article, Long-Term Plans to Build for Resiliency, We'll Need to Design With, Not Against Nature. It was written by Stephen Zacks, and you're the principal uh, subject matter of that interview. Uh, can you give our audience a, a frame of reference for the subject area that you have focused in on in your career resilient design in i think in the landscape context well the landscape and uh, the the larger regional context as well and um well 
where I would begin is with uh, Ian McCarg's book, Design with Nature. Uh, and well, 50 years ago today, on the first Earth Day, I was a student at the University of Cincinnati, and I was helping to organize um, that Earth Day. And part of my responsibilities was to put together a uh, book fair. And at that time, there was about four or five books, really, on the environment. There was uh, Rachel Carson, of course, uh, Silent Spring, and Aldo Leopold. And at that time, Ian McCarg's very new book, uh, Design with Nature, and his basic premise was that we should uh, design with nature rather than against nature. We should understand ecology in order to uh, build uh, safer and better communities. Uh, so I picked up the book and, and, and then read it and then decided I would come to the University of Pennsylvania to be a graduate student with McCarg, which I did. And then uh, many years later, I've returned as uh, dean of the school. What a fascinating pathway. You never know. Came from a book fair. Yeah. That sounds like a real turning point in your professional life. Uh, tell us about what Ian McCard was really trying to say in design with nature and why that struck you as being so uh, fundamental to what you've worked on in your career. Well, he um, his basic uh, argument is that we should understand ecology as, um, uh, as a, a basic uh, uh, um, starting point in design and in planning. And of course, uh, understanding ecology relates to uh, more current concepts like sustainability and resilience and regenerative design. And so uh, he basically argued we should understand um, the deep structure of a place, that is its climate, its geology, its hydrology, its soils, its, its plants and animals, and its past land use uh, before we take any action. And uh, he was able to put uh, those principles in place in projects around the world, uh, including uh, as far away as uh, uh, the new capital of Nigeria and the National Park in Taiwan and across the United States. Uh, a couple of his best known projects actually are in Texas, including uh, the Woodlands new community outside of Houston and the Woodlands basically used the floodplains and the ecology of that area to structure a totally new community, which has uh, had a great amount of success and has been able to um, really, when you look at uh, the woodlands as, uh, compared to much of the rest of Houston, it's fared much better in, in uh, storm events as, as far as flood damage and so on. Well, it's clear that, uh, the, the principles uh, in design with nature live on today and arguably are more relevant than ever uh, for those who uh, are open to the notion of climate change. Uh, but you and others uh, at the School of Design, other co-editors, have re-released a book called Design with Nature Now. Uh, tell us about that new effort and what extension uh, of the principles uh, did you hope to accomplish with your effort? Well, what, uh, with the 50th anniversary of uh, McCarg's original book uh, in um, uh, 2019, uh, we decided that we needed to, to, to celebrate that. Uh, but not only looking back, but looking at what the, the idea of uh, uh, designing with an understanding of ecology meant 
for today. So in order to do that, we um, organized uh, a series of three exhibits and we received some very generous funding from the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage here in Philadelphia. And um, we mounted uh, three exhibits, uh, one uh, focused on McCarg's life and writing design with nature. Another uh, looked at um, explorations of time and landscape in uh, uh, Glasgow, Scotland, which is where McCarg was born. And then uh, a third exhibit, we um, selected 25 projects from around the world uh, that have been uh, undertaken in the 21st century, uh, which we thought um, uh, exemplified ideas about design with nature now. So we looked at themes like uh, sea level, uh, many related to climate change, uh, sea level rise, um, biodiversity, how to clean up toxic uh, sites, uh, how to control urban growth, how to ensure clean water. And so we brought together these uh, 25 projects and they were from, from all around the world. And, uh, and, and related to that, we put together uh, this new book, Design with Nature Now, and it includes uh, those 25 projects plus commentaries about those projects and what their relevance is today. Dr. Steiner, you know, I, I want to go back a little bit to this to the notion of, well, let's just how do how do we design? Because when I think about it very elementally, I'm thinking about, say, a, 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 an ancient human civilization. Uh, presumably, you would be designing uh, your structures and your building materials with what you had on hand. Um, designing with nature might have, t to me, seems rather intuitive. Uh, uh, it's presumably much harder to design against nature. Uh, what? W when did we start designing against nature? If I might ask, what? And and what? How did that come to be? Uh, that's an excellent question. Um, if we look at um, ancient writings, like the Roman architect Vitruvius, uh, what you say is exactly right. Much He wrote uh, 10 books on architecture, and most of that was how do you understand um, the place you're building in order to um, design for a, a more healthy structure? And, uh, I mean, there was things like you would sacrifice a a rabbit and look at its liver and understand that that was a window into the health of, uh, of the site. Uh, we got away from it, I think, uh, as we uh, increased um, our ability to, uh, on the one hand, uh, we now live in, in um, structures that are much more comfortable uh, than they were in the past, and our technologies have enabled us to do that. But the cost has been also quite um, significant. Uh, in the United States, 50% of the energy used um, and that, and also 50% of the greenhouse gas produced is in buildings. Uh, and that's um, largely to uh, ensure our comfort. So we've been able through technology in the last uh, 150, 200 years to separate ourselves from nature. So the challenge now is how do we how do we understand um, ways to ensure human comfort uh, that we've become accustomed to, but at the same time uh, not use as much energy and not produce as much greenhouse gases, and also um, 
um, we have uh, increased, uh, there's been a, a great surge in uh, human population growth. And as, uh, as we've grown as a species, we've started to inhabit places uh, that are dangerous for us to live, uh, uh, floodplains and uh, earthquake uh, areas and so on. Uh, so in, in many ways, the idea of designing with nature is common sense. It's, it's um, McCarg did a map in the 1960s of Staten Island, and it showed uh, places that were better to build and places that weren't uh, good to build. And it was before computer technology, computer map overlays and so on. It was all done uh, by hand. And um, after uh, uh, Superstorm Sandy, uh, the areas that um, were um, uh, most severely damaged in Staten Island were exactly the, the, the ones McCarg predicted in the 1960s. So wow. we, have, we have the tools to um, um, design in a way that uh, avoids uh, serious uh, impacts to human safety and uh, human health. And we just need to be wise enough to do so. Dr. Steiner, one of the things that stood out uh, when you j just described this rich history of, of this thinking uh, is the notion that we need to think locally, uh, that the characteristics of uh, the region that, that we are to build in or to design in the uh, ecology of that region and the systems of the region are all important factors in designing resiliently, uh, which I can get behind. That that does seem intuitive to me. I'm curious to know what when you, in your uh, when you're teaching uh, design, does this stop at the building or the grounds that you're working on? I mean, are you? Are, do we, are we to think about, say, food supply uh, when we're thinking about a city's design? Are we to think about uh, the water supply, too? Um, what, what, are the, what are the confines of the, of the quote-unquote design uh, that you work on? Well, I work on larger scales, so I work usually beyond the building scale. But I think it's appropriate. I think we have to think about designing with nature at every scale, uh, from the building... Uh, to the site, uh, to the neighborhood, to the community, to the city and, and the region and onto the planet. Uh, and I, I think all of these things are interrelated. Uh, the use of energy is related also to the use of water. Uh, we need water in order to uh, survive. Uh, so there, there are, uh, it's understanding all of these factors in a holistic way at, at every scale. You know that what I like about this and 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 is the fact that it is it is an innovative, maybe not as innovative as I think, but Ian because of Ian McCarg's work back in the '60s. But I'm curious about this. The suggestion I get from this discussion is that we're talking about a blank slate and a better way to design on a landscape scale. Uh, so much of the American shoreline is occupied. Right. Uh, and adaptation of existing developments. Can you can you speak about um, new or unused areas versus occupied areas, and how these principles can play a role as communities struggle with adaptation to climate? Um, well, I think that given 
sea level rise, given given the increase in um, hurricanes and and other uh, serious events, there probably are some areas that we've settled that uh, we should rethink and uh, not necessarily rebuild every time there's a a storm. Uh, maybe the storm is telling us something that um, this is not the smartest place to build. So um, I think we have to look at when flood and uh, storm events um, happen, uh, question if um, uh, we're building in the right place, and, and if we should use really significant public investments to um, resettle areas that are unsuited for, uh, for us to build houses or factories or uh, businesses in. And so part of uh, I think our challenge is to be smarter uh, in uh, where we uh, where we rebuild, uh, but also uh, areas that have already been built. Uh, some of them are uh, are, are really uh, could accommodate more growth and infill. Um, so uh, it, it's it's looking at areas that are already built uh, and trying to determine uh, can they can they uh, can they accommodate more development or should they be developed um, uh, if, if they are uh, destroyed by a natural uh, event like a, well, uh, like a flood or a hurricane? Uh, you know, I'm just curious uh, for our members of our audience, uh, and I would include myself here uh, in this group, who do not have ex extensive experience uh, either in architecture or design, um, it, when we are to uh, conceptualize or try to understand um, how we can be better at designing our spaces, do you have any, like, what's the lowest hanging fruit to start? Like, if you were to say, hey, you're building a, I don't even know what, a house or something. Like, how would you, how, what's the most simple way to talk about uh, designing with nature? How, what, what's the, the base level? So I was a Boy Scout, and uh, when I was a Boy Scout, uh, I learned how to um, go into an area with my backpack and my, my tent, and um, before I pitched a tent, determine where is a good place for this tent to be. Um, is it, uh, if it was too wet, I, I, I didn't want to pitch the tent there. So I wanted to, I wanted to find a place that was high and dry and uh, depending on the year, the time of the year, I uh, would want the tent to either uh, be in a sunny spot so it would warm up or be in a shady spot so it would cool down. Uh, so I think uh, at the most fundamental level, if we think of ourselves like Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts uh, going into the woods and just using common sense of where to pitch a tent. And then the other lesson from scouting, of course, is when you leave uh, the leave the site, you leave it um, as pristine or better than you found it. Uh, so I think at a most fundamental level, we, we could all think like uh, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. Sure. You know, uh, I happen to, I don't know if this is true, but as someone who's observed landscape design, I'm sure, for decades and around the world, when I look at uh, older shorefront communities around the world, say in Ireland, or if you go back to earlier uh, ages in America, 
if I can say ages about America, uh, it, it does seem that back in the day, uh, folks understood that the close proximity to the shoreline was a risky place to be. Hmm. And being further back was common and pathways to the shoreline uh, were, 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 if you wanted to go to the beach, you had to get out and walk to it. You didn't build your house immediately adjacent. Uh, is that a fair characterization of the progression of coastal development that we have we have forced ourselves closer and closer to the water? Is it, or is that just a sort of a misperception on my part? No, I think you're you're absolutely right. And if you look at, um, I was fortunate to be a Fulbright scholar in the Netherlands, and the Netherlands, of course, is mostly below sea level, and as part of their strategy to protect um, uh, the country. Um, they they don't build on the dunes. Uh, the dunes uh, are viewed as protection uh, from uh, flooding events and from storms in the North Sea. And then they also protect um, uh, wetland areas uh, because when a storm does come, uh, it absorbs a shock. And so uh, when uh, the United States was uh, originally settled and uh, William Penn, for example, who uh, established Philadelphia, uh, he came up the Delaware River and uh, was looking very carefully for a site that was um, on the uh, non-flooding side of the river. And um, he went all the way up to the fall line, which is where current day Trenton is today, and realized that was too far up because you couldn't navigate ships there. So he sailed back down and he wanted a site where there was fresh water. So uh, further down the Delaware River, the, the wa wa uh, water was salty. Uh, so he selected uh, Philadelphia because it was high and dry, uh, navigable, uh, away from the shoreline, the New Jersey shoreline. So it was protected. It had a whole state, what's currently the state of New uh, Jersey, as a buffer against storms. Um, uh, so the, I think when you look at uh, the original settlements, you're absolutely right. They uh, found areas that were protected. Uh, New Orleans is another example. When the French settled the French Quarter, it was the part of current day uh, New Orleans that was the highest ground and uh, and and left uh, the lower areas, um, much of which tragically uh, flooded during Katrina, um, left them uh, alone and um, uh, focused their development on the higher ground. Hmm. Do you think it's possible for us to reclaim that, can I call it, you, you refer to uh, the Boy Scouts as sort of the basic idea An of ethos? <laughs> is there a chance at this stage that we can reclaim some of those principles in the application of our future development? Um, or is the, is the horse out of the barn? Is it too late no, I think we have to. Uh, I think with climate change, uh, we, we really don't have any choice. Uh, we have to, to do so. Um, it's kind of interesting. Our species is named uh, Homo uh, sapiens, and that's a wise species. I think we, we need to start living up to our name and be uh, uh, more wise. Not a bad point. I, I, you know, I recently came across a, a, a short clip, not to descend too far off the, the track here, but of a, a, a beautiful garbage truck, brand new, uh, 
backed up into a river and just unloading the trash. And I thought, <laughs> this is the highest intellectual power species ever on the planet, and this is what we come up with. And, and I do have my doubts occasionally well, about I, what we do. I, I, I think there's a lot of hope in the projects that we put together in the exhibit and the book uh, Design with Nature Now. Uh, there are examples, as I mentioned, from from all around the world. We, we look at a, a couple options for lower Manhattan, uh, how it can um, recover or withstand um, the uh, challenges of sea level rise. Mm -hmm. We look at um, the uh, reclamation of the Los Angeles River, yep. uh, which of course has uh, been channelized uh, throughout the 20th and uh, the 20th century. Uh, we look at really ambitious projects like um, uh, the uh, Yellowstone to Yukon conservation effort of, of, of spanning the United States and Canada, uh, a large swath of land uh, to protect uh, and reclaim uh, nature. Uh, we look at um, what's called the Great Green Wall across um, the continent of Africa to as a barrier to uh, desertification in Africa. So there's, um, uh, we provide uh, and critique uh, a, a number of projects that uh, should give us hope. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm pleased to hear that. I think hope is such a critical element as we face climate change. And the point I think you're making, and I appreciate it very much, is that there is plenty of room to do things better now. The, the game isn't over. Um, you mentioned Lower Manhattan, and it brought up in my mind... Uh, a relationship between the landscape design community and the engineering community. As I'm sure you are aware, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is in the middle of a substantial investigation of structural response to protect lower Manhattan. The city has got a plan and a strategy that's about $10 billion, if I remember correctly. And so much of, of coastal resiliency or shore uh, protection is driven uh, in, in naturally by the engineering community. And here's the thing I wonder, is this community uh, receptive to the innovative principles that you are putting on the table from the perspective of landscape architecture? How is, how's the discussion going with the folks who've got a checkbook and a design sheet? Are they listening? Well, I, I think it's um, a, a mixed bag. Uh, if we look at resilience, uh, the term basically means to bounce back. And certainly we, we should design for the capacity to bounce back, but I think we should be more ambitious than that. And with the Army Corps of Engineers, it's, um, the, 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 their, their structure is um, uh, very based on um, the the, the, the regions of the Army Corps of Engineers, and I think some are more receptive than others. One of my uh, colleagues here at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, Sean Burkholder and a group of people are working um, with the Army Corps of Engineers uh, in the, the Great Lakes. And it's one of the 25 projects we had, uh, we have in the book Design with Nature Now. And Sean and his colleagues from, um, several uh, universities around the Great Lakes 
uh, have been looking at sediment uh, and how sediment is managed. And um, they are, have developed a very, very good re relationship uh, with the Army Corps of en Engineers. Uh, and and I, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, their work and um, their collaboration uh, will provide examples for other uh, regions of the Army Corps of Engineers to, to work together with landscape architects and designers um, in, in order to develop uh, uh, nature-based solutions uh, in addition to um, uh, uh, structural-based solutions. You know, that's, that's a great point. And we do find ourselves at this very moment uh, at a time where uh, around the entire American shoreline, billions and billions of dollars are getting ready to be spent on solving this very problem of how to make our shorelines more resilient. And of course, in the major urban areas along the shoreline, these all too often are uh, concrete, uh, if not a, a wall buried in a dune, which I guess we would consider a good thing. And one of the things that Peter and I uh, ruminate on all the time as we uh, have the privilege of traveling around the American shoreline and, and looking at the condition of the shore is uh, engineering projects and uh Dr. Center, I'm just curious to know what, you know, one of one of our criticisms is that sometimes you look at these like marsh restoration designs or whatever, and they're just not beautiful. They lack beauty. And I'm... They're trapezoids. They're trapezoids. They're very straight. They're, they're, very, not, they're, they're very shapely. Can we, they can have we work a, on that? Well, my, my question uh, is, um, has to do with the concept of beauty and design. And... Mm -hmm. um, how how does nature in the design uh, enhance the the beauty aspect of it? Well, um, I think um, I, I'm, I, an inspiration for me um, has always been Lady Bird Johnson, uh, uh, especially since my time that when I lived in Austin, and um, her ideas uh, about natural um, vegetation and wildflowers. Uh, which um, I, I think is actually quite profound, that if you look um, at the nature, if you look at nature, um, if you look at um, the natural processes of the region that you're in, uh, not only do you, can you learn how to build more uh, uh, conservatively in many, in many um, um, meanings of that word, uh, but also more beautifully. Um, and um, we, um, I think sometimes uh, engineering solutions are um, imposed um, and uh, without really sort of understanding uh, the local ecology and the local conditions. So instead of uh, pre uh, sort of importing uh, predetermined uh, solutions, uh, I think uh, it's better to, uh, first of all, take the time, look and understand and listen to the nature, understand uh, geologic time, and then develop the designs based on that understanding rather than imposing solutions that may have worked. I mean, something that may work perfectly fine in the Netherlands uh, might not work at all, but probably won't work uh, at all in uh, Galveston or New York. 
we can learn from the Dutch, but I think we also need to uh, develop uh, our own uh, uh, designs and responses based on um, the soils, the climate, the geology, uh, the plants and animals of the place that we live. And I think if we, we do that, those solutions will also be more beautiful. Boy, uh, it makes me ask the next question along that same line. If we do that, is it reasonable to uh, to conclude that if we are designing with nature more sensitively to the ecology and even the aesthetics, is it fair to say uh, that that would result in a more resilient outcome? Can we connect those dots? Yeah, I think we we well. We're, first of all, we're a, mostly a visual animal. So how uh, most of us understand the world is through seeing. So um, when we look, I mean, we, we can see, uh, as you pointed out, uh, we can see solutions that don't make sense because they're ugly. Yeah. And um, so I would, uh, I think when, we, when we're in a place that we uh, respond to um, because, it's, uh, because it's beautiful, uh, usually it functions well, too. You know, I, 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 I will get this wrong, but you may know it. In France, there is a very famous monastery that sits on a mudflat in a bay and mm. that you can only get to at low tide. Mm. And, and I also look at uh, old Roman port fortifications where they were, were building structures uh, on the shoreline um, to, to handle wave and risk and that kind of thing. But I got to tell you, when I look at some of the old Italian design or look and at this they still French, stand. You know. And they still, and they're stunningly beautiful. Uh, it seems like a lost art. Well, again, uh, we, we tried to show uh, in, in Design with Nature Now some uh, pretty remarkable projects that... Uh, uh, certainly respond to uh, nature, but I think also uh, have real beauty. Uh, the, the, the team involved uh, in redoing the Los Angeles River, uh, I think uh, are both, I, well, I know, are both dedicated to restoring the natural hydrology as much as possible, uh, but also creating a, uh, a more beautiful uh, river corridor through Los Angeles. And for the benefit of the readers, if you if you go to the Metropolis and you and you Google up the article that we referred to at the opening, long term plans to build for resilience, they uh, the cross sections of the Los Angeles River designer included, and I completely agree. Uh, I, I thank you for giving me a little bit of hope. I, I I can get cynical about this stuff, but there are people who are dedicating themselves to. The restoration of these notions, and and you're certainly at the forefront of that. Um, I, I wanted to go back a little bit to the suggestion you made uh, about coastal rebuilding. That as storm events occur, there's going to be new available land, and you are calling into question the wisdom of simply repeating the development patterns that we've had in the past. So there are these new available blank slates to work with. Um, as a landscape architect, I thought that was appreciated that point of view, and it it reminded me of Dr. Rob Young at the Center for Developed Shorelines at uh, uh, UNC Wilmington. Uh, I think it's Wilmington, and 
and, and what he's talked about is the same thing and is arguing for a rethinking of development patterns. I think it's Western Carolina. Is it Sorry. West? Thank you. Western Carolina. Rob is a fantastic thinker. He's a geologist by training. Um, but he's also calling for a rethinking of, of, of these shorelines and it moves to the idea of retreat. Uh, how, and let me, uh, this is a political question, but I don't see us doing this very often. And I wonder what it will take for us to pursue the suggestion that you are making, that we don't have to go back to the same way we've done it, that it's absolutely essential that we rethink and adjust to what's happening. Can you comment on that? Well, I think one of the, the forces there will be as um, we experience more and more the effects of climate change, uh, it's going to get more and more expensive for us to rebuild. And uh, that calls into question, how do we use uh, public money the most effectively? And rebuilding Rebuilding in a floodplain that's a 100-year floodplain that may flood every um, 100 years is one thing, but building in a floodplain where the 100-year flood occur every other year uh, is pretty stupid. And so uh, putting people at risk, putting property at risk, um, and then rebuilding in the same place you know is um, dangerous, uh, it, it doesn't make any sense uh, morally or financially. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, it's also fair to say that our private property laws and the way that we treat uh, real estate has a lot to do with how we uh, go about our designs. We're kind of balkanized here where each, you know, if you have a, a, a shoreline and it's there might you might have 200 owners over a like half mile stretch of shoreline and each private property owner or entity has come, you know, within the bounds of, of the law, within the building code has complete autonomy over the design, the sourcing of their building materials, how many bathrooms they have, I suppose, within the rules of regulations and so on and so forth. But Dr. Sander, I want to talk to you just really quickly about, um, our inspiration here, because one of the things that uh, I find when we're talking about uh, resiliency and moving forward and, you know, regardless of whether you're on the American shoreline or elsewhere, uh, the planet is un is changing. And so this is truly a global uh, concept here. We all need to be thinking about this, I believe. But one of the some of the clapback that I hear from time to time is that, hey, listen, you're trying to send us back to the Stone Age. We figured out how to live these, as you pointed out earlier, these pretty comfortable lives where we have air conditioning and uh, we have uh, heaters and lights that go on when it gets dark and we're able to just live these very uh, quite comfortable lives. And somehow it's construed that if we were to uh, design with nature, that that's somehow a going backward. It is a regression of our lifestyles. And I heard earlier that you kind of ch you were challenging that and, and basically saying, hey, listen, there is an aspiration here uh, of a better existence. We don't necessarily need to give up our lifestyles, our our comfort, our, our uh, you know, our climate control, our lights. But maybe we need to think about 
the sourcing of our electricity more uh, thoroughly or our, uh, so that was Peter dropping the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, don't worry about it. Or, or maybe we need to think about our water supply a little bit more carefully or where, where in fact our structures are. Um, what, tell me about how this comes up when you're uh, wor- working on the various boards that you're on. I mean, I'm sure that you, you are tasked oftentimes with framing um, the future in a way that is aspirational uh, and I'm sure you've hit the same roadblock about going, you know, going back in time versus what the the optimism of the future. Well, I, I think uh, what we've learned to do very well is um, uh, use nature for our own benefit. And there's a concept that's uh, emerged in the last couple of decades called ecosystem services. And the idea of ecosystem services is what do we get from nature um, basically for free? Uh, clean air, clean water, uh, good soils. Um, and what I would like to, um, where I'd like to, us to go as a species would be uh, through uh, our living, would be uh, not taking and, and depleting those ecosystem services but producing um, structures and landscapes and cities that produce ecosystem services. So we don't have to give up comfort, but we're giving back to nature rather than taking it away from it. Mm. Yeah, waste not, want not. Uh, it, 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 it calls to mind, I think, your work when you were down here in Austin, Texas for 15 years and working uh, with the nature, uh, the 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 nature conservancy and the hill uh, the hill country conservancy, I've often thought about the Edwards Aquifer, which is an underground uh, reservoir here in Central Texas that supplies an incredible amount of clean drinking water uh, as an absolute uh, you know environmental service provided by a natural feature. Uh, can you talk about the experience you had? in trying to uh, introduce landscape design principles to protect that natural environmental service. Uh, What did you learn from the experience of addressing that issue in Central Texas? Well, first of all, um, uh, I I, I didn't have to do much in terms of the community of Austin is so incredibly aware of uh, the relationship of the hill country to the Edwards Aquifer and ensuring uh, um, um, the water supply, uh, even more so to San Antonio than to Austin. Uh, so uh, basically, there's a community um, in Central Texas um, that cares very deeply and has tried um, in, in many ways uh, with the Hill Country Conservancy. Uh, it's a very interesting group made up of uh, basically a combination of real estate interests, uh, business interests, and environmental interests. And um, the uh, strategy, the planning strategy that the Hill Country Conservancy used, uh, uses, uh, much like um, in other parts of the United States, is basically uh, using uh, the private property mechanism and buying conservation easements mm-hmm. or receiving donated conservation easements uh, in order to protect uh, the land. Hmm. Uh, in much of the world, the hill country would be a national or a state park. It's, uh, it goes back to the uh, point about beauty. It's one of the most beautiful landscapes 
um, uh, possible. Uh, uh, one of the most beautiful landscapes I've seen. So it's both beautiful and it's amazingly uh, important for water supply and water quality. Absolutely. And that's recognized. And I think um, I was fortunate to be part of uh, a larger movement of people uh, that uh, are trying various ways to protect it. And there was, and I bring this up as an illustration, I think, of the point you're trying to, to, that you're making um, about designing with nature. Uh, I'm wondering about the lessons learned in your many years of working in Central Texas uh, and dealing with land planning, development over the Edwards Aquifer, the protection of this resource. It seems to me inescapable that one of the critical elements of success there was a public appreciation and public willingness to execute these ideas. How important is that going to be going forward as as you try to introduce these concepts into newer communities? Is it is it essential that you have that engagement and that support, or how do you deal with that? Well, it's a long term um, uh, proposition in Austin. Um, of course, in the mid-1970s, uh, Ian McCarg did a plan for Lake Austin. So uh, city leaders in Austin read the book Design with Nature, wanted to bring McCarg and his uh, thinking to Austin. So much of um, West Austin uh, and uh, Westlake Hills and Rollingwood uh, are, re- are direct result of uh, McCarg's efforts, which were which was adopted uh, into um, the city of Austin's uh, comprehensive plan hmm. in 1980. Uh, so the, the, the efforts of the uh, city then, uh, um, the city uh, taxpayers of numerous times have taxed themselves to buy land for conservation yeah. and watershed protection. So that uh, much of that goes back to uh, the planning that was done in the 1970s and, mm. and continues to this day uh, in Austin. So it's not a um, it, it's it's a lifetime of of, of work and many in, in, in the case of Austin uh, now a couple generations of uh, people that have been involved in uh, working to uh, protect um, the, the the very valuable. Uh, resources that make Austin possible. And of course, Austin's become a very desirable place because mm-hmm. it does have places like Barton Creek uh, and uh, the Greenway system um, that um, was a result initially of some of the planning efforts uh, in the 1970s. That was a lot of stuff I did not know. I didn't realize he was a p- part of the, of the formation yep. in history in Austin. And of course, you mentioned Lady Bird Johnson, who was critical in the Town Lake Trail system, and right. so many, so many innovative thinkers that uh, were able to uh, influence the, the public dialogue over these issues. And, and Lady Bird, uh, Lady Bird involved uh, McCarg in the early 1960s um, in uh, a lot of the discussions um, about uh, environment and. Um, environmental planning that she uh, advocated uh, as first lady. Uh, so their relationship uh, goes, uh, went back uh, many years. Fascinating. So looking down the road here a little bit, and I'm wondering as you uh, 
practice uh, these principles. Uh, what is the level of receptivity to this now? Are you seeing greater willingness? Uh, tell us what how communities react to the reintroduction, uh, as you say, through the book Designing with Nature Now. Well, we've uh, we've got a um, the the exhibit that we did last summer, and the book have been very very well received, and I think a lot of it, and the reception has been by younger people, uh, younger people who are uh, very very concerned about climate change. Um, and are looking for uh, ways uh, that they can be involved in a positive sense to um, um, design and plan a, a, a better future. Uh, so uh, we're, we're getting a very nice reception. Well, it's definitely something that is become is increasingly, I think, top of mind uh, for all of us, but especially uh, those of us millennials who are uh, you know, frankly, a little anxious about the future here and want to see an evolution in thought. Uh, Dr. Steiner, I'm, I am curious to know a little bit more about uh, the, you know, go, this is going back almost to the beginning of the interview, but I do want to circle back. I think I think it, it'll be worth it on the on the notion of, of what design actually is. And you started off, you were talking about our uh, you know, the Boy Scout trip and you're going out and you're picking your your campsite and you're going to build in these considerations. Well, you know, I want it to be dry. I want it. I want the sun on me in the morning, et cetera. You put your tent there. Um, but what we do see is that uh, it's hard to come up with a central plan that everyone gets a lot gets, you know, buys into. Uh, say you're camping with eight people, you show up at your campsite and everyone runs out with their tent. There's one primo spot. There's another spot. Where does the, where does the camp cook? Where does the kitchen go? Um, how this turns into a situation where you need a government, you need some sort of uh, community process. And you have been involved in these processes, both here in Texas and around the, uh, around the country. Um, where, where are communities to begin this process of planning, say, a, a shoreline, a coastline that might have been developed. Maybe maybe they're interested in, in uh, retreating away from that development. But where where should they begin? Well, I, I design is a hopeful activity and design designers are optimists and designers uh, basically um, conceive better better things and better ways of doing things. And so to begin, um, I, it's a, a community uh, and however one defines a community at whatever scale uh, needs to agree on a common vision, a common uh, direction. Um, the Quakers who settled Philadelphia, um, their vision and William Penn's vision was to develop a green country town. Um, and that, uh, that vision uh, resulted in uh, how Philadelphia was initially laid out and, and, and planned. So you start with a vision, uh, a goal, uh, and then uh, develop what the strategies are to uh, accomplish that. So if you're designing, if there's eight of you and, a, and you have to build a fire pit someplace, um, that, 
um, you agree maybe from the beginning that um, you all will have a, a, a good campsite and you'll put the fire pit in a place that doesn't uh, burn all the tents down. Uh, so if we start with that, that vision, then we say, okay, the, well, the fire pit should be over here and we'll put the, the tents over here. And, um, and, um, if, um, and perhaps you have a lottery of saying, um, but to select which person gets a, which, which, hmm. uh, site. Uh, but that's, a, that, uh, obviously it gets more complex as you deal with a community or you deal with a neighborhood or you deal with a city or a region. Right. Uh, and many more people are involved. It, it makes me wonder, uh, uh, Dr. Steiner, as the dean and of the University of Pennsylvania's at the School of Design, and in the preparation of your students uh, for this kind of work, uh, the skill set you're describing, the capacity to, uh, to address a community, to contend with the communal nature of, of the process to contend with the political decision-making that is inherently built into these decisions. Uh, is that something that your students are exposed to in their training at the, uh, at the UPenn School of Design? They are, and they, uh, the students are increasingly wanting more of that. And um, again, though, there, there are scale differences. If one is designing a building or a, um, a an object, um, there is um, there, one could have a, a more control uh, than if one is de developing a campus or a park, which which uh, involves more uh, participants. But in general, um, um, our students are wanting to know more, both about. Um, uh, the environment, but also about how how things um, how they can design things that will be approved and will be embraced uh, through uh, uh, through policy. Wow, so much to think about in this fascinating subject, ladies and gentlemen. Dr. Frederick Steiner, the dean of the University of Pennsylvania School of Design and uh, the collaborator, editor, co-editor with many others on the re-release of Ian McHarg's uh, fundamental book, Designing with Nature. The new one is called Design with Nature Now. Uh, Dr. Steiner, how can folks learn more about what you do, how to access your book? Well, uh, the book has uh, been produced by the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, so one can go either to the Lincoln Institute for Land Policy, and it's being dis distributed by uh, Columbia University Press. Uh, so either the Lincoln Institute or Columbia University Press or Amazon uh, or your local bookseller. Right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Starner, for, for sharing your insights uh, with us on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And I'll, I know we have a lot of engineers in our audience, and I will uh, simply make a, an appeal uh, that opening uh, the aperture a little bit and considering the principles that Dr. Steiner is advocating for in Design with Nature, I think would give us a better future. And I really appreciate you introducing us to the concepts that you're working with, Dr. Steiner. Well, thank you very much. Singing, mama, now, the blues, he's high.
Cool.